Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Uh, for those that are worshiping with us for the first time, my name is Jay Vineyard. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Uh, I had the privilege of overseeing a couple systems, the uh, helping people get mobilized, serving system, uh, pastoral care system, and the leadership development system. And I also like to go out and drink coffee with whoever wants to go out and drink coffee. So call me sometime. I'm there with you. A couple of, couple of uh, quick uh, uh, things I want to call your attention to uh, that's happening uh, uh, today is one, uh, uh, the boxes, the offering boxes that go out, that's our, our Second Corinthians offering. Uh, we're taking an offering today to help people affected by the hurricane that just blew up through Texas. So if you want to give specifically to that, you'll you see these boxes as you go out, and you can put the offering there. And also as you go out, you'll see uh, some information about our Healing Strong ministry uh, that's going to be handed out to you. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that as well. And the third thing is you notice in the, in the bulletin there's uh, information about Russia. And I've, we have a unique opportunity and invitation to go to Russia that has been given to us by the Russian Baptist. That's the good news. The bad news is it's in January. But that's okay. That's okay. Some of you from the north, that's okay. And quite honestly, they keep their houses as hot, uh, so hot that it kind of equals out the cold outside and the heat inside, so it equals out. So uh, I need 10 people to go. This is pretty a cool thing, so uh, sign up. Let's go with me, okay? Uh, at least my wife would want you to go with me. Somebody to keep me out of trouble. So we're going to talk today, starting a sermon series about miracles. Uh, maybe you got some information from our church uh, that we're, we're starting this sermon series uh, today in the next two weeks where Pastor Keith and I will talk about uh, miracles uh, in the life of the church or in the life of the believer. And, my, and my, the miracle that uh, Pastor Keith asked me to speak to is, is the one that talks about uh, Jesus calming the storm. And it's actually found in three of the Gospels. It's found in Matthew, it's found in Luke, and it's found in Mark. And so we know that anytime something is found in the, in the Bible, it's important. But when it shows up three times, if three different writers uh, speak to it, you know that that is particularly important, and we probably ought to pay particular attention to it. Uh, so we're going to look at that particular uh, that, that uh, miracle. But before we get there, we thought it might be helpful for us just to, just to talk briefly about uh, what does that mean for a biblical miracle? Because there are some challenges for us to understand miracles as defined in the Bible that we probably need to get our arms around. Now, one challenge is just how the word miracle is used today. And we use that word normally in our culture to define any uh, extraordinary event that happens in our lives. Uh, for example, when uh, many of our young adults with their kids show up in this room, uh, finally get here, uh, they're excited because they got the kids parked in the children's building. Most of them are dressed. They think they've got most of the kids there. Uh, they come in and they, they went through all this and they walk in and says, I'm only 10 minutes late. It's a miracle. Well, it, it, it might be pretty important. Maybe not the same thing as walking on the water, but it's big stuff, right? Uh, others, they like to use the word miracle to uh, define what happened maybe with their team. And so I know Casey Foote's right there. He's a big Cubs fan. And so last year, he had the Cubs won the World Series, and we all said, well, that's a miracle. 
which works okay as long as your team isn't from Boston. Yeah, I hate to bring this up to us again, but you know, at the last year's Super Bowl, those people from Boston were using the miracle to find what they happened at the Super Bowl, but we don't feel that way, right? Now, I got to tell you, right after the first sermon, I, I talked about that. I was standing by the, the information desk, and this, this young lady came up, and she looked at me and said, we're from Boston. <laughs> so, it's still not a miracle. <laughs> so, we just understand that, that just the common use of the word uh, might keep us from understanding what this word really means from the biblical reference point. But the other problem is just how we see the world. In other words, how we interpret the world. Our worldview makes it, for some of us, difficult to embrace the idea of a miracle. Because for some of us, we take a mechanical perspective of life. And what that means is that we say that there are unalterable natural laws that cannot be broken. And if that is true, it rules out any possibility for a miracle. So for some, of, some Christians, we look at the Bible and we see a miracle that Jesus did, and we try to come up with an explanation from the natural laws that we know. And when we do that, we, we also understand that for some of us, there's a little bit of embarrassment to embrace the idea of a miracle. Because, because it goes against the laws that we knew and we were taught, but it assumes that we know everything about nature, but we know so little about God himself. See, Christians in every century have refused to have their universe so limited. They've affirmed the continuing miraculous work of God in the universe that he created, that he continues to sustain, that he reveals himself in. And that one day he's going to redeem. The idea of miracles is so, such a foundation to evangelical Christianity that we, we embrace the idea of the virgin birth. We, we celebrate Jesus' miraculous ministry. We celebrate his bodily ascension, which are just a few of the miracles that we find in the Bible. In fact, uh, such, so, so much is supernatural, preconditioned Orthodox Christianity that without it, historical Christianity would collapse. So when we think of miracle, what, what does that really mean? What does miracle mean? Well, I have a definition for you. You might want to write it down. We're going to put it up on the screen. So here it is. Here's the first idea. is an event beyond nature's power. So it's an event beyond nature's power to produce and that only God can do. So it is an event beyond nature's power to produce and only that God can do. And we, what we find in the Bible is that there were three specific purposes for a miracle. Uh, one of those purposes is to glorify the nature of God. So you'll find that in John 2.11, is to glorify the nature of God. But the other idea is to accredit certain persons as spokesmen for God to credit certain persons as spokesmen for God. So in the Bible, we see in the Old Testament, Elijah, Elisha, other prophets who performed a miracle. But it accredited them. That miracle said that this person speaks for me. We also find it in the New Testament when Peter does a miracle in the book of Acts. 
and it credits that person as a spokesman for God. But whenever you see it, th- th- that miracle always gives glory to God. But now in our culture, here's what you want to watch out for. We have people that, that say that I, am, I, I do miracles on behalf of God. But if a person makes that statement and the glory is going to that person... And they're using that as a means to enrich themselves, then they got a problem. Right? And the third idea is to provide evidence for belief in God. So when Jesus did the miracles that we find in the New Testament, it was evidence to believe in Him. And you find that throughout the Bible. So, in the strictest sense of the word, Uh, miracles are only possible in a world that accepts the reality of God. And he's active in our world. So having said that, we we want to provide that little framework. Let's get into the miracle that uh, for the day. And it's actually found, you might want to write this down, the miracle that we're talking about is found in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. It's found in Luke chapter 8, verses 22. And our passage today is going to be centered on the book of Mark, Chapter 4, verse 35. So Mark, chapter 4, verse 35 to 40 is where we're going to look today as we talk about the miracle of Jesus calming the seas. Now, as I looked at this passage, I realized that there are about six narratives that run throughout this particular miracle and some pretty big takeaways from it, okay? So here's the first narrative. It's just the narrative of the day in the life of Jesus. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible, a miraculous event, we just want to narrow in on that specific event without realizing what came before or after. And so if you look at the, the day that, that this miracle occurred, you open it up in chapter 3. When Jesus got up that day, the first thing that happened to him is that he had this adrenaline pressure point of a confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. There's a conflict. They basically accused him as being a spokesman for Satan, or they use the word Beelzebub. And then from that moment, he went to this house, and just a massive number of people that were in the house, and he was teaching them. But then Jesus' mother and family showed up, and they were trying to kidnap him. Because they were going to take him back to Nazareth. They thought he lost his mind. And then from there, Jesus came out of the house and he went down to this sea that we call the Sea of Galilee. And it's a massive lake. It's about five miles in length. It's about 13, 15 miles in in length. So five miles wide, 15 miles long. And he's there and this mass of people are crowding around. They want to hear him because he is teaching as no one has ever taught before. And it's such a massive crowd that he gets into this boat and he just goes out a little bit so that he could communicate with the mass. And he's there and he's teaching in the, sun, in the, in the, in the, in the heat. And so it comes to the end of the day. And Jesus said to his disciples, this is verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat. And other boats were with him. 
So there's a sense of urgency here. It's very possible that Jesus had hit this wall. He just couldn't do anything else, and he had to withdraw. Now, there's a principle there, too, for us. Sometimes we hit the wall, and the worst thing to do is try to keep on going. Sometimes it's appropriate for us to withdraw, to rest. And so they got on the boat, and they were going to the other side. Which brings us to the second part of this narrative, which we call the storm. And when you look in verse 37, it says, A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. So I was curious in my study. I thought, how, how could something like this happen? How, how bad could this really be? Now, understand that I am not an oceanographer. I am not a limnologist, which I learned that's the, the big word for the day if we study lakes, okay? So I just want to prove that I studied, right? So I did, I, I'm not that. I'm not a geologist. I, I basically ran away from all things science when I was in college. And so I really had to bone up. I said, you know, how is this possible? And so I, I did some study. And uh, here's, what I, here's what I learned is that Inland waters, uh, particularly fresh waters, possess a, a kind of treachery that the oceans don't have, mainly because of the rhythm of the waves. You know, in the ocean, there's the rhythm to it. Well, it, in, in lakes, uh, they don't have that same kind of rhythm, and actually they kind of go and cross uh, each other. Another idea that we found is that the lakes are vulnerable geography because they're surrounded uh, by land. And so whatever is happening around on the, on the land can be multiplied of what's happening on the water. And also they would suggest is that there are, there are quick temperature inversions that can bring a violent change in weather. So then you go say, okay, well, what about the Sea of Galilee? What, how does the geography, how does the lay of the land affect the weather there? Well, the Sea of Galilee is 628 feet below sea level. So it's deep in the valley. And surrounding the Sea of Galilee are these massive mountains that have, have these gorges that are cut through them. And so what, what we learn is that wind can go blow through these little, little valleys in, a, in, a, in an incredibly fast pace. And then when it hits what can happen in, uh, on the Sea of Galilee where the temperature rises because it's set so low below the sea level and invites the cold air to come on top of it, you can have a massive storm in a matter of seconds. So when the Bible talks about the violent storm that occurred, one of the writers in, in the, uh, Matthew, when he writes about his, he uses the word violent. The word there is seismos. In other words, seismatic. It's an earthquake type of experience. And so all of a sudden, this storm comes. And the reason that Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, preserve it is because the ancient people saw no greater symbol of death, no greater symbol of destruction and chaos than the storm, the typhoon, and the hurricane. We can see it today. I mean, mankind is really good at developing things that destroy life, aren't we? But nothing can match a hurricane. 
mean, just turn on the news today. How that hurricane just went through and destroyed swaths of land. And people are trying to put their lives back together again. Now, some are wondering if, if maybe, maybe these guys were just inexperienced to be in a boat. Maybe they just have never really been around a lake. And, and, and maybe they're just exaggerating the severity of the storm. But the problem with that is that four of the disciples grew up on this lake. Four of the disciples, four of the people that are in the boat, as childhood, spent every day of their lives fishing this lake. It was, it was a storm that was about to take their lives. And in that moment, that storm became the most important vehicle for teaching the disciples about God and his power in his lives. So let me stop first and, and just kind of tell you what this miracle it doesn't teach. Because I've heard people teach on this miracle and they, I, I think they did it wrong. And basically what, what they suggest is that whenever we're in the storm of life, when Jesus shows up, we're out of the storm. That's not true. And the belief that is being embraced in our culture is that if I do all the, all the work necessary to grow spiritually, even though if I'm, I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm actively part of worship, I'm serving him, that somehow or another I ought to be immune from the storms of life. Here's the reality. The storms come, don't they? And sometimes the storms and chaos comes in ways that are totally surprising to us and we're not really ready for them. But here's the takeaway. In the storm, there's God. In the storm, there's God. But I mentioned that in this moment, this storm was the most important moment in these disciples' life to form them to be the men that they were to become. In Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus came to this very, the, the same shore, and he looked at for his disciples, the, the, for the guys that would become his disciples. He went to Simon, who we call Peter. He went to Andrew. He went to James and John. And he looked at him and says, guys, I want you to follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. It wasn't that, guys, you are fishers of men. It wouldn't be, guys, you ought to be fishers of men. He says, I'm going to make you. In other words, I'm going to work in your life, around your life. I'm going to shape your life so that you are going to change the world. You are going to become what I designed you to be. You're going to become fishers of men. And that was a, a, a process of two, three years that he worked in their lives. And he shaped them so that they could become who they wanted to be. Now, here's a principle for us. It's a universal principle that without trials, without difficulties, without failures, we will never grow up to be what we can become. And storms are part of that process. 
I came across a quote some time ago that, you know, the last two years has really had a lot of meaning to me. I want you to write this down. Look up here at the screen. He says, storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace. Think about that. Storms are God's way of bringing us in deeper grace. It's that in that moment when there's an intensity of the storm in our lives that we begin to understand God in a way that we've never had before. And he brings us into deeper grace. In fact, some have even said everything that has helped them grow in spiritual truth and enhance their existence has come through affliction. So much so that this next quote, I think, particularly is meaningful to me. It might be not to you, but it is to me. I want you to look at it. It says, without adversity, we would be insufferably self-centered, proud, flat-dimensioned, and empty people. But the storms come. We have a story that we want to share with you. Uh, David and Lori Milliken have been part of our church for a long time. David's an elder. Three incredible sons. But we want to show you the story of David and Preston in an experience that changed their lives. Pay attention to the screens. I'm David Milliken, and I've been a member for my wife, and I've been a member for over 20 years at Dogwood, and we have three boys. And uh, Preston is my middle son. As a 16-year-old, I never thought about death um, until April 25th, 2015. We were involved in uh, what's known as the worst sailing disaster in modern American history. So the Dauphin Island Regatta is raced down in Mobile, and it's three, uh, three sailing clubs there on the Mobile Bay all come together once a year for the big regatta. And so in this event, it's usually uh, about 100 to 120 sailboats that race from the top of Mobile Bay to a barrier island at the Gulf of Mexico, which is Dolphin Island. So that's about uh, 18 nautical miles that you sail to go from start to finish. So we woke up uh, really early in the morning and uh, we got our sailboat set up waiting for our uh, race time to start about 9.30 in the morning and so we set sail about 7 a.m. and we were just waiting for our start. Obviously there's a lot of people. There's over a hundred sailboats, over 400 sailors out in this race and um, everybody watches the weather because you're trying to determine like what's the strategy that you're going to do on the race. And so in the beginning of this race, it was a pretty clear day, about 20 mile an hour winds, so perfect sailing weather. So we were about two hours into the race and I remember just looking up and seeing the skies uh, were dark, like I thought it was like midnight outside Um, and lightning was striking all around us and we're pretty much the only boat in eyesight that I could see at least and I just remember seeing light or seeing lightning strike everywhere and thinking we have a we're in the middle of the ocean with a 20-foot mast in the middle of the ocean like 
this lightning hits the mast, like we could be be toast. But um, so I just remember just seeing that big cloud and turning around and looking and seeing clear skies. So I knew we could be safe, um, but I didn't know at the time that the storm was rushing at us at about 60 knots. We turned back around, headed towards land, and um, headed right in the middle of the storm. And I remember turning around and looking at my dad. I was in the front of the boat, he was in the back, and him saying, we're gonna be okay, like God's with us. In an instant, we um, capsized. I went flying, um, like the boat launched me, and I was up underneath the boat, not knowing where my dad is, trying to find the surface, but more importantly, trying to find my dad, because I knew he was gonna be the one um, to keep me safe. I just felt a sense of peace of um, a hand touching my shoulder and it was my dad and we poked up um, out of the from under the boat and we got back up on the boat the winds were rushing about 75 miles an hour and the waves were about 15 feet high and we kind of just sat there and rode it out on our boat that was flipped upside down I just remember or yelling out to my dad like we need to pray and um, I just remember praying to God like God just calm the storms um, and keep us safe and and after we prayed I just started singing songs um, just worshiping God because he, I knew he was the only one that could get us through that storm and uh, keep us safe we were we were out there riding out the storm for approximately an hour. But unfortunately, there was 10 boats uh, sunk during this regatta. There were uh, over 40 sailors who were rescued floating out in the ocean. And um, the really most unfortunate thing is that six people lost their life during this race. I think I learned three things during this from Preston. One is where we learn to, we need to cling to God. We need to get as close to Him as we can, and that's what Preston and I did in the in that moment. I think that Preston was the one who said, "Dad, we got to pray," and Preston was the one that said, "Dad, we've got to sing worship songs," and we started singing worship songs. But I would say where it hit me is on the ride home. My brother, my niece, and Preston were in the car, and we were going back. But there had been six people who lost their lives and over 40 sailors that had been rescued. But it would have been a lot different ride home and that God had actually performed a miracle. And that I hope this story will be encouraging to people who need a miracle. Preston's a senior in high school now. You saw the a little book that he uh, held up. We want to give this to you today. He wrote it, high school senior. And so when you leave this morning to go into the lobby,
you can pick up a book. But here's something that this uh, high schooler wrote. The Lord is near. Hold on to him. For those that are in the storm, the Lord is near. Hold on to him. But yet some of us are really struggling with that because it brings us to the next part of our story, the next part of our narrative, is that the, the guys in the boat actually made an accusation, accused Jesus of something. They accused him of being indifferent. And so when you look at in Mark 4, 38, they said, teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? So I can imagine what was going on. Uh, here was here Jesus, man. He was still sound asleep in the front end of the boat. And they're back in the back, bailing out water, trying to stay survive, trying to survive. And they thought, how can this guy still be asleep? Well, if you have a teenage boy, you know that they can sleep through something like this, right? But he was exhausted. And so they, they, they were going to wake him up. Now, they had no idea, no idea of, of what he was about to do. But they maybe wanted to wake him up and just, just to say, hey, uh, help us bail this water out. Hey, do something. But they basically said, you're indifferent. Every one of us have come to a place in our lives when we're in the middle of the storm that we want to ball up our fists to Jesus and, and, and accuse him of being indifferent to the suffering that we're going through. One of the people that has shaped me spiritually and probably shaped most of us uh, that are a little older in our, our walk with the Lord is a guy named Henry Blackaby who wrote this book called Experiencing God. And Henry Blackaby tells of the time whenever he was going to the hospital and he thought one of his kids was about to die and he's rushing to the hospital and he said, God, how can you let this happen? If you love me, how could you let this happen? And Henry Blackaby writes it on a dime, on a pivot. Came this, came this, the reality is the Lord said, Henry, I died for you. I took your sin God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He said, never question my love for you. That was sealed on the cross. Preston writes, whatever our circumstances and however alone we feel, we can be assured that we are really never forsaken or lost. We always have the Lord our God with us. Commit yourself fully to the Lord, and he will never let you go. Pretty wise words from an 18-year-old. In John 16, 33, Jesus said this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, for I have overcome the world. And then we get into the miracle, which is the fourth part of the narrative. And he got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, some would say, you know what? All right, so the, the wind stopped blowing. I've been, I've had that happen in life. A lot of wind, all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's still. But the water still moves. 
that was calm. The word rebuke mainly means authority over. Now, I have come to love that word rebuke. I used it Friday when I, I was grandparenting my nine-month-old ba- grandbaby, who she heard some of this sermon. Now, that's a whole new level of child abuse, don't you think, to hear this going on. And uh, I was, I was kind of working on some ideas and thoughts, and grandbaby did what grandbabies do. And I looked at Naomi, and I said, I rebuke that diaper in the name of Jesus. Your grandmama's not here. Don't come out. oh well didn't work so when Jesus rebuked the waves he says I have authority over when we look at the Bible and we see the miracles basically the miracles demonstrate Jesus' authority over when we see that Jesus healed the sick, it demonstrated his authority over sickness. When we see that he cast out demons, it demonstrated that he had authority over the gates of hell. When he intervenes in the natural world order, it demonstrates that he had authority over the creation. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It demonstrates his authority over sin. When he rose again from the dead, it demonstrated his authority over the greatest enemy of all, and that's death. We serve an awesome God that's still active in this world. So it brings us to the next narrative, this question. In verse 40, he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? I wondered about that. I kind of wondered, how was this delivered? Was it stern? Was it kind? I don't know. But here's the message. Guys, you, you should be there by now. You, you ought to know who I am. Because at this point, they had seen him cast out an unclean spirit in Capernaum. They had seen him heal Peter's mother. They would seen him heal the sick. He would seen him heal those with leprosy. He saw, he, they have seen him for, forgive sins. And he, they heard him teach as no one else had ever taught before. They should have been there. But you know, I suspect that it was pretty easy for the disciples early on when they looked at the people that were coming to Jesus for healing. It was pretty easy for them to say, hey, all all you got to do is have faith in him. Isn't it easy to have all the faith in the world when somebody else is in distress? But when we're there, it tests us. Our faith grows through adversity. Our trust grows when we see how God moves in our lives when we're in adversity. You can't grow your faith through somebody else. It's got to be you. Which brings us to the last part of the narratives. It's perhaps the most important question that will ever be asked. Verse 41, and they were terrified, and they asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. That's a pretty big question. Who exactly is this? For some of us, we have resolved that question. 
We resolved it by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and made him our Redeemer, our Lord. And for others, you're still in that faith journey. You're still, still not real sure. Who, who is this? But it is a question that every one of us has to ask at one time in our lives, and we have to come up with some type of appropriate response. Who is this? So if you're maybe not sure, maybe if you want to have more conversation about your spiritual journey, about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ who would change your life, I invite you to take this response card. And on the card, be sure and put your name on one side, on the back side of it. Just say, I'd love to have a conversation with someone to answer the question, who is this? But for some of us, when you take this response card, you're you're in the storm. There are circumstances, there are things that are going on, there are things that are out of your control. Life is chaotic, and it feels like you you just don't know what the next step of life is going to be. So when you respond in your response card, you might even want to put, Pastor, I'm in the storm. I need prayer. And some of you might even say, you you know what? I'm in the storm, but this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm learning. In fact, I had three or four people that came up afterwards today that says, let me tell you the lesson that God has taught me through my storm. So if you're in the storm, this is the place to put it. So here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pray with you in just a second. Everyone just take these response cards. Just go ahead and grab them in your bulletin. Put your name on one side. In a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. And as I'm praying, this will be the opportunity for you to, re- to, to respond however God leads you, whether it's to have a spiritual conversation, whether it is to, to, for us to pray for the storm you're in, to pray for you specifically. You're going to put that on here. And then when we take the offering, you'll put it in the offering basket. And then we'll take it from there. We'll take it from there. But how, what would be the, res- the appropriate response from the miracle of the storm? Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful. We thank you, Father, that you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you, Father, whenever life comes unglued, you're present. We're praying, Father, for people that need a miracle, that need you to to do something in their lives. And maybe the biggest thing you need to do is change us through the storms. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and how it changes us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you would like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword DOGWOOD to 77977 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and to give.